The following sermon, entitled The Love of Christ for His Bride the Church, 30th in the series on the Book of Ephesians, The Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of November 6th, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word tonight to the book of Ephesians. We will read Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 8 through the end of the chapter. And the text for tonight's sermon will be verses 25 through 33. I will not reread those verses, and therefore, please pay special attention to them as we read them. God's Word comes to us tonight in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things that are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God." Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And now what follows is the text for tonight's sermon. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it, nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. 
Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Thus far we read God's Word. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul has transitioned from the broad applications to the specifics. The Apostle Paul has been indeed been making application. He started doing that, especially at chapter 4, verse 1, where he began exhorting the church to walk in a certain way as becometh a Christian. But up until chapter 5, verse 22, that is through chapter 5, verse 21, those applications have been broad. They've been general. That is, they've been addressed to all of the saints of the congregation. That is, whether you are young or old, male or female, everything we saw in chapter 4 through 1 through 5, verse 21, was addressed to everyone. Beginning at chapter 5, verse 22, the Apostle Paul transitioned from the broad to the specific in that the Apostle Paul started addressing specific segments of the congregation and giving them specific instruction concerning their station, their calling in life. And that began with the passage we considered last time, chapter 5, verses 22-24, through 24, and the calling of wives to submit themselves to their own husbands. In this passage that we consider tonight, verses 25 through 33, the Apostle Paul continues with the specifics, but now moves on to addressing the husbands, the married men of the congregation, and calls them to love their wives. But now, as those who've been following along, through the entire book, does it come as any surprise to you that even as the Apostle Paul calls husbands to love their wives, he has just as much to say, if not more to say, about the love of Jesus Christ for His church. Notice that very briefly. Chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. But then he immediately adds, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. And then what follows in the subsequent verses is really a description of Christ's love for His church and what He does for the church in that love. And yes, He comes back to the calling of husbands. He does that in verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. But then, By the time he gets to verse 29, again, he's talking about the love of Christ for the church. And he continues to talk about the love of Christ for the church. So that when we read this segment of verses, we're almost left wondering, what is the main point? Is it the calling of husbands to love their wives? Or is it the love of Christ for the church? But as those who've been going through the book, this really should not be any surprise to us. Because this has been the Apostle Paul's mode of instruction throughout the whole book. 
So that even when we come to the, the practical section of the book, chapters 4 through 6, it's all rooted and grounded in the truths that were taught in chapters 1 through 3. And even in chapters 4 through 6, we see that the Apostle Paul is bringing up certain doctrinal truths. He's interweaving the, the gospel indicatives with the imperatives that flow out of that. He's emphasizing the, the connection between our doctrine, what we believe, and our practice, how we live our lives. And he does the exact same thing here. Even as he calls husbands to love their wives, he extols the love of Christ for his church. But now because there is so much instruction on both the calling of husbands and the love of Christ for His church, there's really too much here in verses 25-33 through for a single sermon on the text. And for that reason, we are going to have two sermons on verses 25-33. through That is, we will have the exact same text the next time we come back to our series in the book of Ephesians, 25-33. through But with a different focus in each. And we're doing it this way because these verses do form a unit. There's no good stopping point in the middle that we could take the first few verses and the next few verses. They are one unit, but we're going to look at these verses with two different sermons. The first sermon, the focus will be on Christ and His love for the church, but not to the exclusion of the calling of husbands and application to marriage. The second sermon that we will have the Lord willing next week Sunday evening will focus on the calling of husbands, but certainly not to the exclusion of the love of Christ for His church. And insofar as there's overlap between the two, insofar as there is a level of redundancy, I make no apologies because of how beautiful the love of Christ is for His church and because of how important it is that as husbands we love our wives. So tonight we consider Ephesians 5, verses 25-33 through using as our theme the love of Christ for His church. First, let's look at the marriage between Christ and the church. Second, we'll look at the saving love of the bridegroom. And then third, at the presentation of a glorious bride. The love of Christ for His bride, the church. The marriage between Christ and the church. The saving love of the bridegroom. And the presentation of a glorious bride. In Scripture, we find a number of different illustrations that teach us about the church and specifically about the relationship between Christ and the church. For example, there's the illustration of a body. That's one of the illustrations that we've seen in the book of Ephesians, which illustration says that Christ is the head of the church and the church, the members of the church are the members of His body. And that each one of us has a place within the church. Within the body, that is. Another illustration that we've seen in this book is that the church has been likened to a building, to the house of God, that's slowly being built up 
through the ages, stone by living stone, one stone being added at a time. Those are two illustrations, each of which highlights different aspects of the relationship between Christ and the church. Here in this passage, we have yet another such illustration. The illustration of a marriage. So that we can understand how Christ is related to the church in light in terms of a marriage. That's clear from verse 23. Chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and He is the Savior of the body. And then verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. The very clear implication of what's being said here is that we can understand the relationship between Christ and His church in terms of a marriage so that Christ is the the bridegroom or husband and the church is the bride or the wife of Jesus Christ. We're familiar with this that this is an illustration, but now consider the significance of it. For as I said a moment ago, each illustration highlights different truths, brings to the foreground different aspects of this relationship. And what this picture of a marriage teaches us is the closeness of the union between Christ and the church. That there is a one flesh union between Christ and His bride, the church. And we say that especially in light of verses 30 and 31. Verse 30 says, For we are members of His body and of His flesh and of His bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Verse 31 is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, which verse in Genesis 2.23 teaches us about what we call the one flesh union between a, a husband and a wife. That once they are married, they are no longer two, but one. And now what's so interesting is that this passage is teaching us that that applies first and foremost to the relationship between Christ and the church. That we are not two, but one. That as Adam could say about Eve, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So Christ says about His church, She is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There is a a one flesh union between Christ and His church. And what this is emphasizing, what this is teaching us, is the closeness of this relationship. And in light of that, there are two important implications that flow out of this. On the one hand, for Scripture to teach us that the relationship between Christ and the church is that of a a husband to a wife teaches us of the, the intimacy of this relationship. For as we just noted, Scripture takes that idea of a one flesh union and applies it to Christ and the church. And that idea of a one flesh union certainly includes the, the oneness in mind, the oneness in purpose between a husband and wife, but it also certainly has in view the, 
union that takes place in the marriage bed. The intimacy of a marriage. And now the passage is teaching us that there is an intimacy to the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And now certainly, we're not to understand that in a sexual manner. And certainly, we must not have any sort of crude thoughts in this regard. We must not think of this in a derogatory manner. So far as that is our thinking, we need to expel that immediately. But simply take the positive part of it. There's a, there's a warmth here between Christ and His church. And what a privilege this is for us. That we get to have this fellowship, this communion with our Savior Jesus Christ. A fellowship and a communion that we can enjoy already now in part in this life, but a fellowship and communion that we will enjoy the fullness of it and especially the, the intimacy of it in the life to come. So that on the one hand is what is one of the implications that comes from understanding that there's a one flesh union between Christ and the church. There's intimacy in this relationship. The other thing that comes out is that this is a guarantee that Christ is going to care for His church. And we say that in light of what's said in verse 29. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. What this verse is saying is that because we've been joined together, made one with Jesus Christ, as those who now belong to Him, therefore He's going to care for us. He's going to nourish us. He's going to feed us. He's going to provide us everything necessary for body and for soul. He's going to cherish us as the church. He's going to He's going to comfort us. He's going to take care of us and do so in a a tender manner. And again, this highlights the privilege of being a part of the church. It means that our Savior ever has His eye upon us. That He's lovingly concerned about us and He's going to take care of us. And does this not then support the main theme of the entire book that we've been considering for almost a year now. The theme we have chosen is the blessedness of the church of Christ. And by saying that's our theme for the series, it's not so much that we're picking what we want this book to be about, but we're saying if we study this book as a whole, that's the the main truth that we see running throughout the entirety of it. The blessedness of the church of Jesus Christ. And this passage certainly supports that theme. It, It provides evidence that this is indeed the theme of the book because what a privilege to be in this close union with our Savior. To have a level of intimacy with Him. To know that He's going to care for us. That's what we learn when we understand the relationship between Christ and the church using as an illustration our marriages. But now if we stop there, then we will 
have not done full justice to this text. Because you see, it's not so much that we can understand the relationship between Christ and the church in terms of our marriages, but really it's that His marriage with His bride, the church, is the true marriage. You see, thus far in the sermon, we've been making it sound like our marriages, our earthly marriages, that's the real marriage. That's the main thing. And then we can use that as an illustration to understand this other relationship. But we, the reality is we have to flip that around. It's the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. That's the true marriage. That's the real thing. And our marriages are really but a dim picture of that. And we say that in light of what we read in verse 32. Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And now when the Apostle Paul speaks of a mystery, he's talking about some truth that we could not know apart from Revelation. We've seen this before in our series on the book of Ephesians. Mystery in the New Testament does not mean a riddle that you can't figure out, but it refers to something that is hidden from us, and unless there's a, a revealing, well, it would remain hidden. Applied to what we're talking about here, the fact that verse 32 says this is a great mystery is signifying that there is no way that we would have ever guessed that we could understand the relationship between Christ and the church in terms of a marriage with Christ as the bridegroom and us as the bride. We never would have come up with that. We never could have known that unless God told us in His Word. That's the main thing being said. But the clear implication is that our marriages are really pictures of the marriage between Christ and the church so that when God instituted marriage, He was giving us a picture that would help us to understand, to comprehend something of that far greater relationship between Christ and the church. And the reality is, and this is especially true, of the way that marriage worked in the days of Jesus Christ and the culture that He lived. God governed in His providence the, the practice of marriage and how it developed so that there were certain customs in place in the days of Jesus Christ that point especially in a unique way to the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And we'll see that in the third point. But right now, we're making the point the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the true marriage. And our marriages are but dim pictures of that. But now do consider the practical significance of that for our own marriages. It means that our marriages are to reflect the marriage between Christ and His bride, the church. That the relationship between Christ and the church, that's the perfect marriage. That's the standard. And in our own marriages, we are to aim at that. So that within the marriage of Jesus Christ with His bride, the church, we see 
a loving bridegroom who gives himself for his bride. And we see a a bride that submits herself to her husband. And so in our own marriages, there's to be that same love of a husband for his wife and the same submission of the wife to her husband. Is that what you desire your marriage to look like? Is this what we are striving for in our own marriages? Or are we content with an unhealthy marriage? Have we given up on our marriage and the prospect of having a happy marriage? There's perhaps no better prayer for a married couple to pray at their bedside at night than to pray, Father, give us the grace to reflect, even if only dimly, nevertheless accurately, the perfect marriage between Christ and His bride, the church. That's what we are to aim for. That's what we're to strive for in our own marriages. But now while this passage does teach us about the relationship between Christ and the church and the marriage between them, what it especially emphasizes though is that within that marriage, within that union, it emphasizes the love of our Savior for His bride. And that's what we want to look at in the second place, the saving love of the bridegroom. The text tells us very clearly about the love of Christ. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Christ loves the church. And in the second point, we want to look at three things that this passage teaches us about the love of the bridegroom. First, Notice the object of His love. The church. Christ also loved the church. And when it speaks of the church, it's talking about the whole body of the elect people. All those whom the Father chose in eternity unto salvation in Jesus Christ. That is, all those whom the Father hath given to the Son. That's the church in view here, but... If we leave it there, we're not doing justice to the idea of the text because when we read that Christ loved the church, we have to remember that means He loved sinners. Because that's what characterizes us as a church. That we are a sinful people. To draw from what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, by nature we were dead in trespasses and sins. Our walk, our life was after the prince of the power of the air that is after the devil. We followed him. We followed the world. We were ever fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. 
Which is to say that from a spiritual, moral point of view, we were dirty. We were defiled. And we say that especially in light of verse 27, which we're going to come to in a moment. Verse 27 says that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This passage is teaching us that the church is going to be made spotless and without wrinkle and without blemish. But the clear implication is that apart from His saving work, we are full of spots and blemishes. We're covered in wrinkles. That is, from a spiritual point of view, we are an ugly bride. And it's worse than that because the reality is we're unfaithful to Him. As a church, we are the spiritual Gomer. That wife of the prophet Hosea who is unfaithful to her husband. Who went after other lovers. That's us. That's the church. And thus, how amazing when we read in verse 25 that Christ also loved the church. It's not that He loved this beautiful and altogether lovable bride, but He set His love upon a church that was altogether unlovable. There's nothing beautiful in us to behold that would draw His love out of Him toward us. That's what makes this love amazing. It's a love for sinners. And this love becomes even more glorious when we move from talking about the object of His love, the church, to the demonstration of His love. That's what we want to look at secondly in this second point. Christ demonstrated His love and He did so by giving Himself. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. That is, He gave Himself as a sacrifice at the cross of Calvary. That's clearly what's in view here. Even as it was in view back in chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2, Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given Himself for us. In what sense? An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. It was in His love that He took upon Himself the burden of our sin and guilt and carried that His whole life long. It was in His love that He endured all of the mockery, the reproach, the shame. It was in His love that He suffered the, the physical pain that He endured especially towards the end of His life and especially in the nailing of His body to the cross of Calvary. And it was in His love that He endured the far greater pain and torments, the agonies of hell. And that He, allowed, and that he endured the wrath of God against our sin. It was love in the heart of our Savior that made Him willing to do all that. And all of that is in view when we read in the simplest possible terms, Christ also loved the church and 
gave Himself for it. This teaches us about the nature of His love, the character of His love for us. His love is a self-sacrificial love. Not a mere sentiment or emotion. Not a, a feeling of giddiness. But in His love, He gave. His love is costly. And notice what He gave. He gave Himself. Not just all of the, the riches that He had as the King of the whole earth. Not even His time, His energy, His abilities. He gave that too. But He gave His life. His life for the church and His love for the church. His love is a self-sacrificial love. And it's also a saving love. He did all of this for our salvation. Notice those two words at the end of verse 25, and gave Himself for it, for the church. That is, for the advantage of the church, for the the benefit of the church, for the, the profit of the church. He had our greatest possible good in view. That is, He had our salvation in view. And by giving Himself a To die at the cross of Calvary, He thereby accomplished our salvation. He's delivered us from our sin and misery and He now blesses us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. This is a saving love. But now this passage not only teaches us about the object of His love, the church. Not only the demonstration of His love, He gave Himself, but it also teaches us about the purpose of His love. And especially His loving sacrifice. Namely, that He might sanctify us and cleanse us. And that brings us into verse 26. That. And now it's telling us the purpose for His love and why He gave Himself. That He might sanctify and cleanse it, the church with the washing of water by the Word. And oh, what a gracious and loving work this is. Because as we saw just a moment ago, apart from His transforming grace, we are a church full of spots, wrinkles, and blemishes. But even that is putting it mildly. And it's put much stronger in a passage such as Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16 speaks of God finding the church as it were and bringing the church to Himself to be His bride. And what's noteworthy for our purposes is the state in which our Savior found the church apart from His work. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4 and following, And as for thy nativity, God speaking to His church, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee, thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all, 
none I pity thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood. And then it talks about His grace toward the bride, but note that description. It's saying that apart from His work, we're like a brand new born baby covered in all the things that it is covered when it first comes out of the womb and just left out in an open field. And thus, what good news to read that in His love, He sanctifies and cleanses us. As we read in verse 26, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. Christ in His love sanctifies His church. Now likely, that's not a reference to that aspect of our salvation we call sanctification, but it's to be understood more broadly as His work of separating us unto God. Setting us apart unto our God. And that from a, a positive point of view, so that positively He sanctifies us and the negative then is added that He also cleanses us. That is, He removes all of that filth, all of that pollution, all of that defilement. And He does that through a, a twofold cleansing. He cleanses us from the guilt of our sins. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, He washes them all the way. And that washing with respect to our guilt is a, a perfect washing so that not one is left behind. But He not only washes away the guilt of our sin, He also cleanses us from the, the pollution, the power, the corruption of our sin by His Spirit and by His Word. And while this part of the cleansing is imperfect in this life, it will be perfected when we're brought to glory. And in this work of sanctifying and cleansing us, He uses two instruments. The end of verse 26, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. The washing of water cannot be a reference to anything other than the waters of baptism, that sacrament. And when it adds the Word, it's talking about the, the Scriptures. Even as we learn from Jesus Christ in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And when we take these two together, washing of water, and by the Word we see we have the chief means of grace. We have the sacraments and we have the preaching. And it's by these means that Christ in His love for the bride sanctifies and cleanses the bride. In the light of our natural state and condition, what a truly wondrous love this is. So do you know that love? Congregation, that your bridegroom has for you? When we think about the object of His love, the demonstration of His love and the purpose of His love, is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul prayed what he did for the church back in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19? His 
second prayer for the saints at Ephesus included this. Ephesians 3, verse 18, that they would be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Paul's prayer is that we would know something of the love of Christ for His church. Because while we can sound the depths of the sea and of the ocean, while we can measure the distance to faraway stars, there is no measuring the love of Christ for the church. It's a love that passes understanding. And thus shall we not praise Him for it. Fall down on our hands and knees and say, worthy is the Lamb. That's why it's so important that we know this love of Christ for us. But now having asked the question broadly, congregation, do you know the love of Christ for you? In light of the context, we have to ask that same question more narrowly. Husbands, do you know the love of Christ for you? And that's an important question for as husbands, there is a certain difficulty and struggle for us to understand all this. Because what we have just learned is that as God's elect people, we are a part of the bride so that in the perfect marriage, in the true marriage, our place in that marriage, our role in that marriage, is the exact opposite of the place, the role that we have in our earthly marriages. We are the husbands, and yet in the true marriage, we are part of the bridegroom. And that presents a certain difficulty here. We, we struggle to think in those terms. But do not let that struggle to hide or to diminish the love that Jesus Christ has for you men of the church. And it's so important that we know that love and bask in that love. Because it's only then that we will ever love our wives. So may God impress upon us the glory, the wonder of Christ's love for the church so that we might love one another and that especially as husbands, we might love our wives. So we've explained the love, the saving love of the bridegroom, and now we need to see that in His love for the church, Christ has an ultimate purpose in view, 
a goal, an end in view. And that goal is the presentation of a glorious bride to Himself. And that's what we see especially in verse 27. Verse 27, we read that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Really, we could say this is a fourth thing that the passage teaches us about His love. The goal, the ultimate purpose of His love. But because there's so much here, we separate this out and make it a distinct point of the sermon. And look at the presentation of a glorious bride. But now if we're going to understand this passage, we need first to acquaint ourselves with the marriage practice and customs that were prevalent in the days of Jesus Christ in the culture in which He lived. They were slightly different than ours. That practice those customs began with what's, beca- what's called a betrothal or an, es- an espousal. So it's like our engagement, but stronger, more binding. Because if you were betrothed to another, that meant from a legal point of view, you were husband and wife. And thus, if you were going to break that off, at that point, a divorce was necessary. That's why we read with regard to Joseph and Mary, that though they were, they were betrothed, and to break that off would require a divorcement because this was more binding. It was stronger. So it begins with the betrothal. But then what's especially distinct is that between the time of becoming legally husband and wife, there was a period of time between that and entering into the fullness of the marriage, the the consummation of the marriage, and the the wedding feast that accompanied that. In that period of time, the bridegroom, the to-be husband, would go and prepare the dwelling place where he and his wife would live. Toward the end of that period of time, between the betrothal and the consummation of the marriage toward the end of that period the wife or sorry I should say the bride would make herself ready she would get ready for when her bridegroom came to her to take her to come and live with him to take her to that marriage feast it's in light of that custom that was prevalent in the days of Jesus Christ, that we are to understand the language here in verse 27, that it says that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. For right now, as a church, we are betrothed, espoused, to our Bridegroom Jesus Christ. That is, from a legal point of view, we are married. The dowry has been paid. And there is now an unbreakable bond between Christ and His bride, the church. But the marriage has not yet been consummated. The wedding feast still has to happen. And there's a period of time 
between the espousal, the betrothal, and what is to come. And during that time, the, the bridegroom is away from his bride. Our bridegroom's in heaven. What is he doing? What any bridegroom would we be doing? Preparing a place for us to live in. A place to dwell together as husband and wife. And as for the bride, that means she's, this means we are in that period of waiting for Him to come, during which period we as a bride are to be preparing ourselves for the day of His return. And now it's with all of that in mind that what we read in verse 27 is meant to strike us. Because what we read in verse 27 is that He, Christ, the Bridegroom, might present it, the church, to Himself. So that what this passage is teaching us is that even though the Bridegroom is away preparing a place for us to live with Him, He is at the very same time the One who's preparing the Bride for that day that He comes again. That's different than the custom in the days of Jesus Christ. In that day, it's the bride who prepares herself. And now to do justice to the whole counsel of God's Word, there is a sense in which we too are preparing ourselves for that day. We say that in light of Revelation 19, verse 7, which speaks of us preparing ourselves for the coming of Jesus Christ. But in light of this passage, we see that ultimately this is His work. He's the one getting the bride ready. He's the one making her beautiful. He's the one adorning her. And He does that by sanctifying and cleansing us. And now you see the connection between verse 26 and verse 27. The two go together. How is He preparing the bride for that day of presenting the bride to Himself? By sanctifying her. By cleansing her. By making her ready so that the overall point is that her beauty comes from Him. The beauty of the bride is owed entirely to the bridegroom. And when He's finished that work, He will then present His own bride to Himself on the day of His return. That is on the day when Jesus Christ comes again on the clouds of heaven. That's what's in view here. That's when He's going to present the bride to Himself. And on that day, she will be a truly glorious bride. Our bridegroom will be able to look upon her, upon us, as the One from whom He has washed away all of the spots, all of the blemishes, all of the wrinkles, they've all been removed. And He'll look upon us as the One that He has clothed in His own righteousness. That's our wedding gown on that day. And thus our Savior will delight in her. He'll delight in her as the one that is the object of His saving work 
as the one who's come to reflect His own beauty, His own brilliance, His own glory. Oh, what a day that will be. What a glorious day. For on that day, we will no longer be merely bride and bridegroom, legally married, but we will be husband and wife joined together in the bond of marriage and enjoying the intimacy of that marriage. Enjoying the great wedding feast that He Himself prepares for His bride. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what's coming. Eternity with our husband. Living with Him and enjoying His perfect love for us. And we can be confident that that day will come because He's at work even now governing all things to bring about that day of His return even as He works to make us ready for the day of His return. That's our hope. And now consider that hope in light of our own earthly marriages. Consider the hope that we have. Whether we are single, married, a widow or a, widow or a widower, whether our marriage is a healthy marriage or a not-so-healthy marriage. This passage gives us hope. This passage gives hope for those who have lost a spouse to death. Who have enjoyed something of the intimacy, the blessedness of marriage. Though your earthly marriage and the joy that came along with that is ended, there's a far greater joy yet to come. The perfect marriage that we will be brought into. Consider the hope for the single members of the congregation. And for those who perhaps it's God's will that you never marry in this life. You will be a part of this marriage. So that though you may not have the joy of an earthly marriage in this life, that doesn't mean you're missing out. It doesn't mean you're somehow losing out on something that everyone else gets to enjoy because you get to be a part of the perfect marriage that gives hope. This gives hope also to those who very sadly have a lousy marriage. A marriage that's been nothing but a disappointment or maybe even a marriage that's ended on account of sin. Though your earthly marriage has been lousy, 
though it was disappointing, though it came to an end perhaps even, you have hope. The hope of a perfect marriage. The hope of knowing the love of Christ, your bridegroom, your husband for all eternity. That's a marriage that will not disappoint. But now there's hope also for those in the congregation who have been blessed with a wonderful marriage. Whose marriage really is a source of joy for them. The hope is that it gets even better. As wonderful as your earthly marriage is, even now, as thrilling as it is to be married to your husband, to your wife, it gets even better. Because as good as any earthly marriage is, as closely as it reflects the perfect marriage, it's still a dim picture. And thus we have hope of something even more glorious. And in light of that, that means there's hope for every married couple whose marriage is somewhere in between, which is probably the majority of us. Whose marriage includes the struggles, the times of strife, the, the times where it's not so pleasant, but it also does have the joys, the parts that are good, the parts that, in which our hearts are filled with love for one another. Is that not what most of our marriages are like? And so far as that's true of us, let both the struggles and the joys point us heavenward. The struggles reminding us that this is a dim picture and that the perfection is waiting and the joys making us all the more eager knowing that if it's this joyous here in this life, how much more joys will it be in the perfect marriage? That's our hope. The hope that Jesus Christ will indeed complete His work of sanctifying and cleansing us so that He might present us to Himself a glorious church. Amen. Father in heaven, our hearts are full. For we have heard of the love of Jesus Christ for us. Impress that love upon us and thereby work in us a desire to love one another. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.